Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Normally, we'd start with a little banter back and forth. But you know what? This is not a normal week. Far from it, as a matter of fact. And we're going to talk about a lot of things. Obviously, we're not going to bury the lead. What happened in Facebook this week is historic, and I'm choosing to use that word, but there are a lot of other things going on. Interest rates going higher, specifically in Germany. Danny's going to talk about that. We obviously have a lot of interesting things going on in the auto sector, the used car sector, something that Danny's been all over. Going to talk about that. And since there's no NFL this week, as we all know, by the way, Danny's just killing it, we're going to bring back what we call rot or rip off the tape. Danny's got a bone to pick on the short selling front. So a lot of things going on here, but I want to get right into it because we saw Facebook now is 40% lower. That's that's not a typo, folks. 40% lower from the all-time high the stock made last summer. Think about that. That is a historic move. By the way, as Dan pointed out, we saw a similar move in the summer of 2018 in the Christmas Eve, but something feels different. And Danny, I want to start with you because a month or so ago, you said on this show, you're as bearish as you've been in decades. And you know what? You smelled something and you were spot on. Sometimes, depending on the mood that I'm in and the mood that I'm in around the market, I like to songs pop in my head. And the one that's popping in today is Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, Nowhere to Run and no, really Nowhere to Hide Here. And I'll say it again. People had an opportunity in this last kind of move higher to sell things that they swore to themselves if they got back up to a level that they would. I'm sure half of them didn't do that. But we're getting less and less places. Yes, Google Alphabet, great quarter, right? You can go run and you can hide in there. Microsoft, great quarter. You can run and you can hide in there. But as you start to lose the big boys, Meta slash Facebook, whatever it is, is a big boy. What do you do now? Because the cream keeps rising further and further to the top. There's fewer places to hide. And this whole multiple compression multiple of sales of unprofitable companies, not Facebook per se, but just in general, those are dead. And so we started out by watching the kind of unwind and still unwinding of kind of the meme stocks, right? And I, I know the market caps aren't significant and AMC and GameStop and the like and Plug and those guys. But when you start to look what that indicates from a behavioral finance perspective, that was the tip. That's going to keep going. And again, flight to quality. Dogs of the Dow have been probably the best performer in the market. We can get to that at a future time. But anyway, those are my thoughts. And just keep upgrading to quality and stop people, stop hanging on to, quote, get even. It's an opportunity cost, Dan. You're talking about that flight to quality, and there's just that group of names is getting smaller and smaller. And so if we were worried about the concentration in Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, NVIDIA, Tesla, and Facebook, when there were six or seven names, it's only that much more concerning when it's three or four. So by the time the listener is hearing this, we're going to know what Amazon did. And in my personal take, they're going to report their Q4 Thursday after the close. There's very little that they can do at this moment 
moment to kind of get the market turned around or at least tech stocks turned around. And if there is a disappointment and there is a guide lower, well, then the stock's going lower. I mean, it's just that simple. And then you just lost another one of these former leaders. And so to me, I just find it a really troubling situation here because the continued concentration in these names and and make no mistake about it. When you see a Facebook, as we're recording this right now, is down 27%. And Guy, you mentioned that gap in July of 2018. You know, that was a hundred billion dollar market cap gap. This is a, say that fast three times. This is a 200 plus billion dollar market cap gap. It's not coming back anytime soon. It's just not. And so we had PayPal last week was down 25% in one fell swoop. We had Netflix down 25% in one fell swoop. So we're at a bit of an inflection point here. And I don't know about you guys. I have my spidey senses up for months now. Guy, you have also, and I just don't know what's going to turn these names at some point. No, it's interesting. And later on, we're going to go off the tape with Jeff Richards, managing partner at GGV Capital, who doesn't have sort of the timeframes that we look at. You know, he's looking at things in terms of five and 10 years. I think you're going to be really fascinated to hear what he has to say on this topic. But you're right in terms of Spidey Sense. And, you know, the problem I was having, Dan and Danny, is I saw all these things happening in slow motion, but yet the broader market didn't seem to care. And listen, to a certain extent, the broader market still doesn't seem to care. I guess my question to you, Danny, is are we on the precipice of that right now in the wake of Facebook and potentially some of the other things we're going to see over the next couple of weeks? Yeah. So one other thing, obviously, that we're getting mixed messages. We have a jobs report tomorrow that's going to come out. We're taping this prior to that. And the only reason that has an impact right now is if I were people in the market right now, I wouldn't be rooting for a bad number so that the Fed's going to slow down because they're going. They're at least going near term. I'd be rooting for a decent number to think that the economy is still strong. But again, just to the back to the point of portfolio management and what really moves these large stocks, it's not retail, right? It's a large institutions on these real companies that they own. And what happens is, as they want to either degross their portfolio or, or raise a little bit of cash, take What's happening is because of what we're talking about, because of the cream rising to the top, they find themselves owning an inordinate amount on a percentage basis of some of these names. So even if these companies report great earnings, they're going to be forced to start taking these things down because they're just going to be massively overweight. And that's just a portfolio rebalance going on right now, right? So I think people need to understand it's not just about how good the earnings can be, and it's not just about expectations and beating those expectations. There is a math here behind this. So like I said, you know, I think this is the time to just focus on quality and stop looking for the, quote, quick buck or a quick edge and, and know what you own. And the opportunity cost is that you stay in a shitty name for too long and you could have sold and bought something of quality. And yes, it may not go up 100% in a year or two years, right? It may not be an ape type stock, but it's still the right thing to do if you truly are a long-term investor in this market. The environment is so much different now. Again, my opinion, for the longest time with the advent of passive investing, which really taken the market by storm over the last three, four, five years, you know, money flows into the market regardless. And on the way up, nobody seems to care. Nobody questions it on the way up. Everything looks great. Money flows the whole thing. But my concern for many years has been unwarranted, by the way, maybe until now, is that when passive becomes active, It's not going to be active on the way up, Dan. It's going to be active on the way down, which is why I always say markets take the stairs up 
and the elevator down. Well, you saw the elevator in Facebook, obviously, over the last couple of days. But quite frankly, Dan, and you've talked about that. This elevator has been operating to the downside for months in some of these other names that, by the way, are not small companies. I mean, you talked about Adobe for months. Look at Salesforce. I mean, I can rattle off a list of names. Now it's manifesting in names that everybody knows. And I think the market's taking notice. We were very clear on this over the course of the fall when we started to see some of these major SaaS companies, an Adobe, a Salesforce. These are companies that had $250 billion market cap companies that in November sold off 10% in a day because investors did not like the beat that they gave and the guidance that they gave, and they marked them down 10%. And it was as clear as day that we were going to see price to sales, multiple compression on some of these massive names, but it had already been going on with some of these much smaller names over the course of the last six to nine months. And I'll just tell you this, we had this kind of like emergency trading spaces yesterday where we had Danny come on. It was during the market day. And one of the reasons why was like, oh my goodness, if everyone thought that there was a near-term bottom in the devastation that was going on in a lot of these high valuation SaaS names, even after they were down 40 or 50% was very very troubling to us. And you see this sort of price action we see today, and it doesn't lead me to believe that anything good is about to happen here. There are no quick V bottoms coming. And going back to that kind of bear market playbook, you got these sharp one-day moves or two-day moves they follow through, but it's a one step forward, two steps back. And if you think that we're not going through those lows from last week and the S&P and the NASDAQ at some point in the next few weeks, then you haven't been paying attention because this is not done. And at some point, and to Danny's point, if you do have a weak jobs number and we're starting a week, you saw a weak ISM number, if we start to see weaker data start to pile up, those names that you're concentrated in, the Microsoft and the Apple and the Alphabet, because they had great backward-looking quarters and gave optimistic guidance, well, then they are the next ones. They're the next shoe to drop. They're the ones that either report decelerating growth or guide down. And that's when we got a real problem. Yeah, I'm thinking that if Bob Marley was still alive, he'd write a song called Stagflation because that would sound really good in reggae. But Guy, to your point on uh, passive investing, it's your friend on the way up. It can be your friend on the way down if you're paying attention, right? If you know an ETF construct and it's going to take everything out equal, right? Because whether it's an equal weighted ETF or a market cap weighted ETF, and that's why understanding within, you know, it really creates opportunity. So stuff will get thrown out, right, uh, with it. So I would definitely take the opportunity. Hey, Dan, just on that, I really think of crypto in my head as kind of a technology stock, just in general. That's how I kind of treat, treat the space. And I know we had another DeFi issue. I don't even know how to explain it, but $280 bucks is gone, whatever. That tends to happen. But um, but uh, if I think about it as a market cap in a company, walk me through, like, is there a valuation proposition other than Technicals driving the force right now, and I did say just before you answer, correlation of Ethereum to the S and P or to the Nasdaq. I'm not sure which one is is the highest it's been. I really since this thing has really come on the scene. So just quick thoughts on crypto, if you don't mind. So to your point, Danny, we have Bitcoin down from 69,000 to 36,000. We know that it found some support at 30,000. And we have Ethereum down to 2,600, down to 40, from 4,900. And we have a $700 billion market cap for Bitcoin. And we have about a $300 billion market cap for Ethereum. And I think that's a really good point that you make. Bitcoin is kind of like in an NVIDIA or a Facebook or something like that. And Ethereum looks something more like uh, you know, some sort of $300 billion sassy sort of consumer internet sort of thing. And so 
they're down. The correlation is is pretty correct with your just thinking about some of these high growth, high valuation tech stocks that have sold off here. So again, I think there's pockets of illiquidity that are away from those layer one protocols in DeFi and in NFTs. And, and that might be another shoe to drop also. Speaking of illiquidity, if you think about what should be the most liquid assets or securities or whatever you want to call them on the planet, and I've said this before, so I'm not breaking any news here. But again, Danny's talked about this. The move in two-year yields has been staggering. I mean, this was 20 basis points going nowhere in the fall of last year. And now we're either side of 1.2%, which if you just think about it in context of percentage move, it's, it's staggering. And now we have a 10-year, either side of 1.8 as we're sitting here. But that's not the story, Danny Moses. What's happening in Europe, I think, is really the story. And we're not looking to make people's eyes glaze over. But German rates are now significantly positive, which is almost comical to say at 14 basis points. But we haven't been there in a long time. Yeah, you're seeing inflation figures also in Europe. The Bank of England, the BOE, raised rates consecutive times for the first time since 2004. They're projecting seven and a quarter percent inflation in the spring. So it's hitting, you know, it's hitting there in the UK. And four of the nine members that vote on this voted for more than 25 basis point hike this time around. So they're very hawkish. And it's really interesting is that I listened to the BBC this morning. Don't ask me why, because sometimes I just like to get objective news of what's going on in Europe. And not once when they mentioned both the BOE and the ECB meeting, which happened today, and just to comment on Lagarde, she's a little more hawkish than she was, right? No one mentioned the stock markets over there because they're not as obsessed as we are. But then I look and see what is the dollar doing? And yes, we're raising rates or we will be. They're raising. So the dollar is actually weakening. So what does that mean? Oil prices are up, probably on the cold ice storm that's sweeping the U.S., but also on Ukraine tensions. This is a problem, right? It's great for oil stocks and energy stocks, which you guys have been way ahead on your OIH call. I think I just saw $90 West Texas come by my screen. I'm not exactly sure what it was. And it's almost even with Brent. I don't think there's much spread right now on Brent and West Texas. So anyway, there's a lot of ramifications going here. I guess it's a good sign on a relative value to the dollar. But let me just say one more thing before you guys comment on this. I just got to throw this back in. I mentioned it when we were on Trading Spaces yesterday. Federal debt is now $30 trillion. And the reason that I believe that we cannot sustain a higher rate environment here in the U.S. is that a large percentage, at this point almost 25% of the income taxes paid to the federal government go to pay down our debt, right? The average duration on the U.S. Treasury debt that's held by everybody is somewhere between, let's say, five and six years. So watch those yields. That basically is going to tell you how the government is going to fund our future growth. In 2001, we were paying over 5% interest. Can you imagine paying over 5% on $30 trillion? So all these things, when the earnings seasons are over, the good and bad, and we're dealing back with the macro again, these are major, major issues, and it's a problem. Because if you can't raise rates because the government can't afford to pay that interest, pick your poison. Runaway inflation or stagflation. But what's going to feel really uncomfortable, guys, and sorry to go on for a long time, is if we start to see signs of the economy slowing while the Fed has no choice but to raise rates now, this is setting up for a pretty wild spring. So- no, it's interesting you mentioned the dollar, Danny. Again, we're not looking to bore you people or make people's eyes glaze over once again. But the fact that the dollar is not rallying in the wake of rising rates here in the United States is a great thermometer. It means that we're behind the curve vis-a-vis the rest of the world. That's the way I look at it. So if we are in fact behind the curve, which we no doubt are, to me, it only means one thing. Rates will continue to go higher. And you, know, you mentioned energy. I think that's really important. I happen to think, and I've said this for a while, and now we're on the eve of it, You know, the Olympics are going to start. And for two weeks, I don't think you're going to hear a lot of things. I think it's going to go sort of radio silent. But 
two weeks from now, I think some of the rhetoric around China, Taiwan, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine is going to get ramped up. And those geopolitical risks that are out there, I don't think they've manifested themselves in the prices yet. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, again, twos, tens, I'll say it again, Danny, and say it again, Dan Nathan, I think we're going to 30 basis points. And I think we're getting there in the form of one and a half in two-year yields and 1.8 in 10-year yields. Well, so Danny actually would probably disagree with you because, Danny, you're in that kind of two to three, 25 basis point rate height camp, right? So we're going to get one in March. Like you said, we're going. The two-year kind of reflects that. Doesn't it reflect two to three hikes here? And I guess the point, Guy, I would just say is that I actually would probably go the other way. I'd say that you're going to see the 10-year back at one and a half, reflecting just really what's going to be a a growth slowdown. And maybe that you just see the two-year straddling that kind of 1% for a while because it's already incorporating two to three, maybe four-ish sort of hikes from where we came. And listen, it doesn't make you so wrong on that guy. I mean, I think we're all kind of in the same camp. And Danny introduced this topic, you know, months and months and months ago, I think over the course of the summer, we feel like we're, we're kind of barreling into this stagflationary environment. And I would just say on the 10-year yields, they can move on various things. And certainly relative to the German 10-year, right? This is the first time the German 10-year is above zero in a while and moving higher. It looks like it's not going to come back. So there is a spread that you will always see between the German 10-year and the U.S. 10-year. So people are playing that trade. But just in general, I would agree with Dan. I think we'll probably go two times, take a break. I think the data will come down a little bit. I think people will start to push out on the curve when these rate hikes are going to come. And I think the reason they will do that is because the economy is slowing. If that is the case, you have a flight into safety because the stock market's not doing well. I think the 10-year yields come in. And I, Guy, I do agree that it could be 30 basis points, but I'm thinking 115, 145. Not that it matters, but again, but I think it does come in. And if the Fed keeps going in the face and inflation is their primary concern and not the stock market and not anything else, we will invert. I think that will happen. So. Yeah, and that's not going to be particularly good. And as I mentioned last week, I had the opportunity to interview Mike Novogratz. By the way, that interview is on the Risk Reversal website. You can find it on our page on YouTube. But Novogratz brought up exactly what you just said, Danny. The fact that now U.S. debt to GDP is about 130%-ish. And his point was no developed economy has ever been able to recover from that. And I don't disagree. Listen, that's just fact. And I think he's on to something here. I mean, it's a really problematic. I don't know how we get ourselves out of this rabbit hole, but that's probably for another show. What I will tell you, though, one of the concerns is when does it manifest? All these things we've talked about, when does it manifest in the credit spreads, high yield bonds, all those different things, used car sales? This is all part of the same pastiche, the same narrative. Talk to me, Danny Moses. Yeah, I was paying attention to Barra's uh, comments when she was talking on the GM quarter, saying production is starting to ramp up. The shortage of chips is abating slightly. It's better in fourth quarter than it was at third. It's better. It's going to be better in first quarter than it was in fourth. That's been a big driver, as we know, of car shortages, which in turn have raised used car prices. Well, you're now seeing from, you can go to like, there's an app called Copilot, which tells you what used cars are doing, and they're not increasing anymore. They're starting actually to come down. So when you talk about credit spreads widening just a little bit, I think of funding costs for finance companies. I think of what are people funding out there? What is being financed out there that could be impacted? It would be the margins on these used car companies, Carvana being one of them, obviously the most well-known credit acceptance scores being another CACC. And then think about the rental car companies, right? Avis and Hertz, which those charges don't look good, by the way. And those fall somewhere between real company and meme stocks, right? The way that these things trade, obviously, what do they own? I mean, they own used cars. That's what they really have. So it affects everyone 
But I would say that this is now, I think, going to be a headwind for these companies. And if you start to devalue your main asset while it's costing more to finance, I don't have to do much math to know that your margins are going to start to decrease. So something to definitely keep an eye on. And to Dan's point, which he always harps on, and always come around on the inflation thing, but there are parts of this inflation stuff, which without question is transitory and unsustainable. And used cars was one of those things. And not that I'm looking to keep score. And I will tell you, if you watch Fast Money, I'm wrong all the time. But you started talking about Carvana in earnest as being a huge short opportunity late summer, early fall. And I will tell you, because I keep track of these things, I think it was a $290 stock. You wake up today and you listen to this podcast, and Carvana right now, I think, is a $147 stock. I can do that math. So that's one of the other reasons you listen to Danny Moses, not just for the NFL picks, but for some of these calls. It don't seem all that logical at the time, but you know, you're talking about somebody that has vision and looks at things in a lot longer time frames than I do. Dan, I know you have some different thoughts in terms of inflation and it's going to abate. Maybe they retired transitory way too quick. And maybe all the things that I'm concerned about are unwarranted. But you know, as we sit here today, once again, Danny mentioned it, you have oil, $90. The only thing that is not triggered, which is fascinating, and you two wagered a little bit of money on, is the gold market. Is the gold market actually telling the truth in this whole thing, Dan Nathan? Guy, you say you're wrong all the time. You're not wrong that often. And you know, one of the things I'll just say is like, I'm no economist, but I'm just looking at what's going on right here. And I'm saying, yeah, I see that all these inflationary pressures, it has a lot to do with the supply chain disruptions here. And I just think that a lot of that stuff's going to abate. And I think crude right now is probably trading a bit off of some of these geopolitical fears, which you just said are probably a few weeks out. I'll just say this. As long as I've been in the markets for 25 years, any geopolitical fear that we could put our finger on, that we could look out, we could kind of speak to is something that usually gets faded. You know what I mean? By the time we get to that event, it's not usually that substantial sort of event that we might have expected. So you may be right. I think I'm probably losing money to you. I bet you on crude. It feels like things that go to 90 usually go to 100. But maybe we start to see that come back in because one thing, if we are seeing a slowing economy and we've already seen China starting to ease over the last few weeks, I just don't think that crude is going to be sustainable up at these levels. And so I just look at consumer spending. I look at some of the other things that are going on here. You know, listen, if the stock market keeps going lower, guy, you say this all the time, the negative wealth effect from that is going to be the thing that kind of slows things down. Here's another one that we've not talked about. Have you guys looked at the chart of Starbucks over the last couple of months? What is that saying to you trading at like 96 bucks. It's been really just a bit of a disaster. I just think there's enough stuff out there that just anecdotally speak to me that some of these pricing pressures are going to abate and we're going to see some of this stuff reverse. It's interesting. So Starbucks, I think, made an all-time high close to 130, maybe 127 or so. As you mentioned, 96 now. I mean, one of their biggest problems are they can't get people to work and it's input costs, which are just through the roof. And it's problematic in terms of margins and stuff. And they spoke to it on their call, without question. You know, Danny, I do think it's really interesting you mentioned that Europe doesn't seem to care about the stock market, nor should they, by the way, in terms of their central bankers. I think we're way too focused on it. One of the other things I think we're way too focused on is short selling and the evils of short sellers and the vitriol hurled towards short sellers. And I'm not suggest that Facebook should have been a heavily shorted stock, but what I will tell you is short sellers provide the speed bumps for the market. And I don't think those speed bumps are in place right now. And I think that's going to be problematic as well. 
I know you want to rip off the tape here about short selling and maybe some of the mythology around it. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, I mean, listen, Charlie Gasparino, who was a pain in the ass, is a pain in the ass. During, during the financial crisis, he would say things that at least we knew were obvious, but he would really accelerate and pour gasoline on what were very sensitive issues right at the time, such as things going out at Bear Stearns and then their prime brokerage unit and creating run on banks. So he breaks this news today, which is not news because the DOJ, as we know, they announced over a month ago that they've been investigating just short sellers in general. And so he's saying he's found out that it's 60 firms and don't get excited, Apes, because it didn't include Citadel on it. But beyond that, it just made me take another look. And I just, when the markets are down like this and people are looking for scapegoats, I just want to reiterate exactly what this is. What is short selling, right? So Short selling is when you borrow shares which you don't own, and it's done in a legal, orderly fashion, or it's supposed to happen in an orderly fashion. So what happens is I want to short a stock. I go to my broker. I go to Goldman Sachs, and I say, I would like to short 10,000 shares of whatever. Let's just say AMC or Tesla, one of those. I say, okay, well, it's being lent out by the owners. The owners get paid a fee for lending it out. The bank caps a fee to be the middleman in that. I borrow the shares, effectively short them for the promise to buy them back at a later date. So I have actually created an artificial buying pressure at some point to Guy's point about speed bumps being in there. Now, in a perfect world, you shouldn't be able to have more shares short than there is shares free-floating. That is naked shorting. That is not legal under most circumstances. That should be investigated. People creating fake rumors about companies to drive a stock down, to get shorts invested, and then they cover on that. That's illegal. That should be investigated. But the majority of the stuff that goes on within the markets where there are short sellers incredible, brilliant people like Jim Chanos, who never spreads rumors, who talks about facts of companies. They're doing a service to the long holders, potentially to the company, if they're unaware that people are focusing on that particular issue. And it can be used in a very healthy way. But I want to say something so people out there understand. The debt holders of certain companies, of certain equities, go out and short equity so that they can provide the company debt. That's how they hedge out their positions. If there's a convert outstanding, by definition, they do something called delta hedging. They're short. Those aren't people that care about what the company does. That's how they set up their books. That's what they do. So don't get caught up that you have a a company that has a convert outstanding. And obviously, there's going to be heavy short interest as well. But here's the best part. If you like a company, and there's a heavy short interest, and that short interest is done percentage of shares short versus percentage shares float. So a 30% would be 30 million shares short on 100 million share float. And if you like the fundamental story, and you've read the short report, and you think that they're wrong, what an incredible long that can be. Because over time, truth will always pan out. So people out there that want to blame short sellers, whatever, do your own work. And by the way, if you don't agree with what the short sellers have to say, then buy more stock because you have automatic buying pressure to guy's point that will come in. So in this type of market where longs want to blame other people for the mistakes that they've made, and again, are there people out there that manipulate stocks on the short side? Sure. But there's also people that manipulate stocks on the long side. So just keep an open mind, even keel, and read up on this because I think this is going to be a major issue going forward. Yeah, I don't think they're the antichrist that the market participants make them out to be. To your point, they do extraordinarily thoughtful work. And many times, and I'm not trying to do the intelligentsia thing, but so often the people that do the work on the short side do such incredibly deep work. And the people on the long side, for example, David Tepper, who's brilliant himself, you know, he'll come on and talk about don't fight the Fed, buy everything. And the simplistic nature of that is so infuriating, and it works. And quite frankly, the people do the thoughtful work a lot of times are the people that are trying to pick apart certain names. As my former partner, Porter Collins, used to say, anyone can buy a stock, right? But not everybody. I mean, anyone can't short stock, but they just don't, to your point, guy, because it's uncomfortable. It's like paying the don't pass in craps. No one likes that guy. No one likes that person playing the don't pass. But you know what? 
Six out of 36 chance you're going to roll that seven. Better odds than anything else on the table. So anyway, you know, it's not a great feeling, but um, listen, truth seekers out there. They are truth seekers. The best odds, by the way, over the last 18, 19 weeks have been going with you. Obviously, we have a week off in the NFL, um, but we will get your Super Bowl pick. I get the feeling I know who you're going to pick, but we'll get to that next week. But when we come back, Jeff Richards, managing partner at GGV Capital. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. Jeff Richards is a managing partner at GGV Capital. Jeff focuses on enterprise cloud and marketplace investments, leading GGV's investments in Apirno, Belong, Boxed, Coinbase, Hotel Tonight, Namely, and many more. Jeff is a former founder and CEO founding two software companies. Jeff, welcome to On the Tape. So, Jeff, it's great to have you here. Dan's going to get into all the market wonky stuff, but I want to start with the hoop stuff. First of all, Congratulations. Dartmouth defeated Georgetown University earlier this year on the hard court. Any thoughts on that? Well, you get lucky. As I have in my Twitter bio, Dartmouth hasn't been to the Final Four in a very, very, very long time. So someday it's going to happen and I'll be happy. Maybe that was a harbinger of things to come. 1959, I think, is the last time they were there. Now, I want to hear their scouting report of Jeff Richards. I have you like a Dan Marley type of player. Give me your strengths and weaknesses. Believe it or not, I was actually a pretty good jumper, good dunker. That was kind of my thing. There's not a huge market in college or the pros for six five white guys that aren't quite as athletic as everybody else. But I was a team builder, good cheerleader, spent a lot of time on the bench. It was a lot of fun. I mean, I tell everybody that can to play a sport in college. It's a great experience. You have to work your ass off and balance time. And it was a lot of fun. I agree with you on that. By the way, Mac McClung, I don't know if you know that name, but he was a kid out of Virginia that went to Georgetown University for a year. And he was a human highlight film I had never seen anything like it. I encourage you and all the listeners to Google Mac McClung and check out his YouTube videos because you don't even think it's real. It's that freak show. So I think what he learned in college is you you might be able to dunk in high school, but the same thing's not happening in the Big East. Anyway, Dan, take it away. Guy styles himself as a little WFAN sort of anchor here. He would do it all day long, Jeff, if he could, man. But here's the deal. We are recording this Thursday afternoon. The stock market is in a bit of a free fall, and it's been a really rough month or so, at least for the major indices. Guy and I sit here and we talk about the stock market. We stare at fact set screens all day long and we're looking at just every little data point and we have to opine on them quite often. Now, you and your business, you're a former tech operator. You've sold two businesses. You've been a VC, it seems like for what, 15 years or so. You take a long-term time horizon. You're focused on innovation. You're not mark to market the way we are. But Jeff, I follow you because I started seeing on Twitter, you were commenting on a lot of public market moves. You go on CNBC quite 
quite often with our friend Debo on Tech Check, and you have a lot of really interesting things to say. What draws you to the stock market? You spend all your day evaluating private companies and working with founders and building companies and taking a long-term time horizon. What is it about public markets that really interests you? Yeah, a couple things. I mean, I grew up in a family of investors. My dad was an investor, ran a business that did money management for small business owners and folks with life insurance and things like that. This is going back 40, 50 years. So I was fortunate. I mean, I grew up, this was pre-internet. So you had to actually read the book you got from Smith Barney or Lehman Brothers or whoever you got it from and try and pick your names. And I bought Microsoft when it went public, doubled my money, thought I was a hero and sold. And what a great lesson that is to learn early in life, because I think by the time I was out of college, my $50 was worth something like 7,000 if I had just held it. And so I grew up in a buy and hold family. My dad, he was a total homer for the Northwest. So he owns Alaska Airlines and Nordstrom and Starbucks. and But that also meant Amazon and Microsoft and things like Nike. And so I grew up with that mentality and just watching how you build and compound if you're not a day trader. Got into venture capital, as you mentioned, about 15 years ago. And venture capital is very much a buy and hold business because we can't sell. For the most part, there's no liquidity. You invest in a company and ideally, if things go well, seven or 10 years down the road, you get a company that's then public and you get some liquidity or maybe you get an M&A exit along the way. But the most value is created by those companies that go public. And so everybody in our business likes to say it's a feature, not a bug that we can't sell because we get that compounding growth of those companies that are growing at 50, 60, 70, 80% a year. So what I've tried to do in the last, call it 15 to 20 years, is apply that lens to the public markets. And I posted the other day, one of my favorite investments is Salesforce. I bought it at, I think my cost basis is about $3 in 2005. And I've just held. Now, I didn't have a lot of money because I was an entrepreneur and hadn't had an exit yet. So it was a few hundred dollars. But just watching that go up 70x without a lot of miracles. I knew Mark Benioff was a great CEO. I knew they were well positioned as the cloud took off. And I had a few friends that worked there. But that, I put a lot of money in QQQ back in the 07, 08, 09 timeframe when the market tanked. And you guys remember, 08, 09 was a scary time. This is peanuts compared to that. We were worried that the entire financial system was going to collapse. But if you had invested in that moment in time, that 08, 09, 010 timeframe, you made a fortune over the last decade. I was telling a friend of mine, the CEO of Electric, we were talking back, I'll never forget, March 15th or 16th of 2020, when the market was cratering and everybody was afraid. We were all panicked that COVID was going to wipe out society as we know it. And I said to him, I said, Ryan, I may be crazy, but this feels a lot like 2009. And I invested more money over the course of a week than I had in the prior five years combined. And those names today have gone on to create a ton of value, whether it's CrowdStrike or names like Goldman Sachs or KKR or Blackstone. So I think that one of the things we learn over time and that I try to share with people on Twitter is this buy and hold mentality. And when everybody's in a frenzy and feeling great, is actually not the time to be buying. If you're going to be buying then, just be buying cautiously, adding to names you like. It's moments like right now where I feel like people have an opportunity to be selective and pick some names that they might own for the next 10, 15, 20 years. So again, applying that venture capital lens where I think we've learned a lot about compounding value. And one of the best things that's ever happened to the venture capital industry, ironically, is Sarbanes-Oxley. Because when Sarbanes-Oxley passed, it made it harder for companies to go public Facebook pioneered the model of raising a big equity round as a private company from DST at a $10 billion valuation, which really nobody had ever done before. And now you've had a whole wave of companies that have waited longer to go public, which benefits those who are private market investors. And ultimately, RLPs, of which 95% of our LP base are pension funds and endowments. And you saw last year, pension funds and endowments had record returns. And that's largely due to venture capital and private equity. So applying those lessons to the public market, sorry for the long-winded answer. 
No, it's a great answer. But how do you quiet your mind? So I've interviewed Michael Saylor from MicroStrategies a couple of times. And one of the topics that comes up is this system that we live in or the culture that we live in is predicated almost on creating anxiety. 24-7 news cycle, constantly in our devices. You live and die with every tick of a stock or a Bitcoin or an Ethereum. How are you able to quiet your mind? Because I got to tell you something, you're in the vast minority of people that are able to do it. It's a skill set. And I'm just curious as how you got there. I'll be honest with you. I don't watch the news. I don't watch CNN or MSNBC or any of these things. I saw yesterday ratings on CNN are down 90% since Trump left office. That tells you everything you need to know. What was the business they were in? It's of scaring people with crazy headlines. I do watch CNBC. I'm a sports guy. I enjoy sports. I talk with friends. One of the reasons I love FinTwit is it smart people trading ideas without the next up war in Afghanistan. It's focused on talking shop about business and where business is headed. So that's one. And then the second I'd say is as you get older, experience has a lot of value. I'm not sure I knew that when I was 25 years old, but now at 50, you can just sort of wake up during the day and say, you know, things are going to be fine. I can look at the trajectory. For example, one of the categories I love is the cloud. I can look at the trajectory of the cloud and say, you know what? I can invest in the cloud for the next decade and I'm pretty confident it's going to grow. So what happens day to day just doesn't bother me. The other thing I would say, and this is one of my passions about helping other people figure this out, is it's a luxury to not need the money you have invested in the market. As an individual, to not have to feel like, oh my gosh, if that $100 doesn't become 150 in the next 12 months, I can't pay for my kids to go to college. So I've been fortunate between being an entrepreneur and now being in venture capital to have the money that I have in the market. If it goes down 20%, it's painful. But I look at that as a buying opportunity because I don't need the capital. And I'm also not a fund manager. I was talking to Brad Gerstner, who you guys know, and he said, look, one of the things that is a huge advantage as an individual is nobody's asking you for their money back. My kids can't take their money back. (laughs) So month to month, quarter to quarter, I have nobody saying to me, hey, that's a bad idea, dad. I've been buying almost every day for the last three weeks. And nobody can critique that. You use the term experience now at 50 guys, what, 70 or so. Um, So he's been through a few different market cycles here. Hold on a second. See, Jeff doesn't know the real answer. I'm going to be 70 mid-June of this year. So don't get ahead of yourself. Nah, nah, all right. He's closer to 60 than he is 70. I guess my point is, is Guy and I have been talking about this a lot and we get asked questions. And just like you just mentioned, we are no one's hedge fund manager or fund manager or broker or anything like that. But one of the jobs that we have is think about our experience in the markets. Think about these different market cycles. Demystify a little bit about what's going on for people who are just not as experienced as let's say you are as an investor in both public and private markets. And we've been highlighting a few things over the last six months that we thought was very troubling. And they were very similar to sort of lead ups that I recall in the late 90s into the market top in 2000 and then in the mid-aughts into the market top in 2007 in two very different markets, but they were speculative frenzies. One of the things for us, we've been looking at the absolute devastation. A lot of those winners that you talked about that you bought in the throes of the pandemic, the way that they have been acting for the last six to nine months, the way that companies that came public either through regular way IPO, direct listings, or SPACs, the way that they've been acting for about a year or so. And then you look over there and you see Microsoft and you see Apple and you see Alphabet and you just see $7 trillion in market cap. So literally close to 25% of the entire market. And then you look at all the devastation under the hood. That is very reminiscent of those last two spots. And then today we're filming this on Thursday and we see 
Facebook that was nearly $1 trillion in market cap just a couple weeks ago is now down 26% in one fell swoop. We saw PayPal, which was a $300 billion market cap six months ago at an all-time high, is now below 150. And we saw Netflix that gap. And so I remember these sorts of gaps that literally preceded protracted bear markets. And I'm just curious how you think about a period like right now, because listen, Guy has been saying this also. We're raising interest rates right now. It's already happened, whether the Fed has chosen to do it or not. I'm just curious your thoughts on that whole setup there. I'm not a huge fan of the SPAC phenomenon, so I'll throw that out there. I think the majority of companies that went public via SPAC could not have gone public via regular IPO. I think it was a quirk in the system that the SEC should have caught onto, and they didn't. And there was a top tier of folks who did SPACs with folks that put in meaningful capital, Altimeter, Dragoneer, et cetera. But for the most part, you had SPAC sponsors who put up no capital, had no faith in the projections, no diligence, frankly, on the business, and were just there as a grifter. So I'll take that out of the calculation. And then the other thing I would say is recent IPOs, it's a tough thing. I think we've had something like 68 companies go public from our portfolio. The greatest dislocation in value for those companies was in the first two years after they went public because you had the hype and euphoria of the IPO where sometimes it got a little ahead itself. Then you had the post-IPO phase where people don't know how fast they're going to grow. They don't really understand the business. They haven't built up a shareholder base. And the insiders are largely selling out over the first two years, certainly after the six-month lockup. So one of the things I've tweeted quite a few times is that is an opportune time to buy great companies. If you just invested in every software company that went public since 2010, every single one with no discriminatory lens, six to 12 months after it went public, you'd have the greatest hedge fund on the planet. You would have outperformed every other hedge fund, including Tiger and everybody else you know, without even having a filter. Now, that's just software. It doesn't include consumer. It doesn't include non-IPOs like SPACs. But IPOs have largely delivered a ton of value once Wall Street figured out who they were and what they were going to be. What you have right now is a reckoning. You guys are much smarter on the macro environment than I am, but people are nervous because of potentially rising interest rates, rising taxes, geopolitical instability. But you ask about PayPal. I bought PayPal when it went public. I think my cost basis is $40. So it went from 275 to 124. I'm bummed, but I'm not crying because I'm up 3x from where I bought it. Again, that long-term thesis of buy great companies and own them for a long period of time squares the same way. Some of the most dislocated companies in the last 30 days are fintech, Square, Delo, Adyen, Affirm, Upstart. I think the market right now is throwing those companies in a little bit with the insure tech space. The insure tech space has gotten crushed if you follow Root or Oscar or any of these companies. To me, those companies were insurance companies that happened to be using technology. These companies that we're talking about right now are technology companies that are trying to change the way the financial system works. And I believe over the long run, by the way, most of those names, over the long run, the conversion to digital cash is going to be a massive trend on a global scale. But you're going to have to ride out short-term fluctuations and multiples, and it's painful. Jeff, I'm not looking to play stock market here, so it's not a question about Tesla, the stock, but it is a question about Elon Musk, the individual. And it's fascinating to see over the last six or so years, his arc through the Trump administration, now this current administration. I'm not sure what's going on. And again, I don't want to get political either. But what are your thoughts on him? I saw a tweet about four or five days ago, one of the great entrepreneurs, job creators, of generations, yet he seems to be, for lack of a better word, being left out in the dark in terms of what's going on right now. As a matter of fact, we're taping this on a Thursday. This morning, I saw an interview Melissa Lee had, I think, with the Commerce Secretary asking that exact question. I think my exact words were, it's an embarrassment. To take 
an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos or a Howard Schultz or take your pick of great entrepreneurs of the last few decades that have literally created millions of jobs. I made the argument the other day on Twitter, if Jeff Bezos hadn't raised wages at Amazon, would wages be going up elsewhere in the country? The federal government's been trying to raise the minimum wage since 2009. Zero movement, not one penny. Bezos raises wages in warehouses to $18. Everybody else has to react and wages go up. Elon Musk, would EVs be where they are today without Tesla? I don't think so. He single-handedly moved that entire industry forward, which we all believe is great for our country. And then you look at what he's doing with SpaceX. It's crazy. By the way, doing it with a lot of his own capital. I mean, he personally funded SpaceX in the early days. He personally funded Tesla in the early days. So to me, it was a signal that Biden is perhaps more partisan than I thought. And I voted for Joe. I was hopeful that he would bring us together as a country after the last four years with Trump. And to me, it was just a strong signal that, wow, there's a lot of partisanship here where they're not inviting the figurehead for the EV industry. I don't know if you guys saw, GM sold 26 EVs in Q4. Not 26,000, 26. How do you invite GM to a conference on EVs and not invite Elon Musk? I just feel like it was uh, offensive to everybody who's a founder, an entrepreneur, a job creator in this country. And I'm, for one, I'm very appreciative of who he is and what he's done. He certainly has his quirks. Some people don't like his personality. They don't like his tweets. They don't like his views on Dogecoin or Bitcoin. But you don't get one of the most brilliant minds in history and expect him to just spend his afternoons coaching basketball. I mean, he's a unique individual. Thinking about just some of those areas of innovation that he's focused on, there's very few entrepreneurs right now who are really trying to tackle those massive problems like getting to Mars and the like and changing the electric grid. I'm probably going to murder this statement, but you know the old saying, we were promised flying cars, but we got 140 character social apps. And it's funny, those names just seem so out of favor right now. What is it about consumer, social? I know you focused on marketplaces a lot, but ad-supported models, and obviously today with what's going on with Facebook, it's a bit of an understatement, but but are we working into a new phase right here? You just gave a great example. These are not insurance companies that are masking themselves as SaaS and AI companies. You're focused on the ones that are actually trying to transform industries. Are we just moving on right here? And is that one of the reasons why a lot of those SaaS names had these crazy multiples for the better part of the last couple of years? And I'm talking multiples to sales versus, let's say, some of these consumer-oriented app-based ones and marketplaces that have just been contracting over the last five years. I guess two ways I think of it. One is, are you infrastructure that enables other businesses and people to be great, which is where I would put things like AWS, public names like Snowflake and Datadog and HashiCorp and Confluent and these folks that provide the underlying technology that allow other businesses to be successful. Even in the SMB tech space, which 60% of America works for a small business, you can put companies like Square and Toast and Shopify and Big Commerce in that category. They are powering other companies to be successful. In the consumer space, it's harder because you're, first of all, today, let's acknowledge the fact that the elephant in the room, you have Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft that have a hammer lock on distribution. So if you want distribution to consumers, you've got to go through those folks. And today, Facebook's feeling the pain of having to go through Apple for distribution. So we've never seen anything at the scale that we're seeing those companies operate at. And that is a longer term concern for how innovative can we be in the consumer tech economy if everything has to go through those companies. That's probably the primary concern a lot of us have. If you have to pay Apple, it's 30% VIG. Can you build a successful business 
in the consumer universe when that's the gateway to the end user. You don't necessarily have as much of that outside the US. Outside the US, the majority of the world runs on Android. The argument is Apple only has something like 20 or 25% market share because the rest of the world runs on Android. So you have less of a hammer lock on distribution, but you also have a much lower income consumer in other parts of the world. But if you ask me, what are you most bullish on for consumer in the next five to 10 years? And I think everybody in our firm would say Latin America, Southeast Asia, India, these other markets where you don't have as much of a hammer lock on distribution as you do here in the US. That's a good segue. Our mutual friend, Adam Bain of O1 Advisors, he and I had a discussion in the throes of the pandemic. It was spring of 2020 and how he was thinking about where they're investing and specifically in private markets. And he was focused on a metric that you're very focused on. And you tweeted something last week and I thought it was really interesting. And I know you and Adam are good friends and I'm sure you talk about this, but net revenue retention. And your tweet was this, open sourcing investment thesis, look for cloud software IPOs from the class of 20 and 2021, find those growing at more than 30% with NRR above 110%. And then you're basically saying, and wait five years. Explain that a little bit. You're not trying to pick a spot on the stock, but you're trying to say, if you get these metrics right, or you get this NRR correct, and you have the time horizon to watch this play out, and you're betting on the proper management, this is going to work. Just explain that to us real quickly, and then give us some examples of what you're thinking about right now in this moment. Well, let me give you one example that I think is a really good one because, first of all, their NRR is 131%, but that is a company called Smartsheet. And full disclaimer, the CEO went to Dartmouth. You guys will appreciate that. So it's an amazing company that I've known since it was a small private company, literally since the Series A, and I've watched this company grow up. Think of it as a next generation software application sort of displacing what Microsoft Office was to all of us in the 90s and 2000s. It's low code, no code applications that people can suck up into an organization and use broadly. People call it Excel on steroids. It's a lot more than that, but we'll just simplify it, leave it there, and also say that other companies in that space would be Monday and Asana. And by the way, I own all three. And when Notion and Airtable come public, I'll own them as well, because I believe this category is going to overtake the way companies use applications. But if you look at Smartsheet, here's a company that was growing at 40%, projected to grow at 34%, very high gross margin. But back to your question about net revenue retention, Smartsheet has net revenue retention or NRR of 131%. So when Smartsheet goes into a year, and this is conceptual, $100 of revenue is going to turn into $131 of revenue. This is one of the things that we love about the software universe, the cloud universe, any company that is providing infrastructure or software applications that are rateable to its clients. Mark starts the year and can basically say, okay, what can we book on top of that 31% growth that we're going to see in the base? That is an incredible thing. And by the way, that's net of churn. So net dollar retention, gross dollar retention would be, hey, what do we grow overall before we back out churn? But every company is going to have some churn, whether companies go out of business or decide to stop using the product or switch to another product. What's really interesting about NRR is I believe it is still a widely misunderstood metric. Most companies didn't even report it five years ago. And when you were going public a decade ago, we took a company public in 2008 called Success Factors. And Glenn tells a great story about doing the roadshow and People couldn't figure out why bookings didn't turn into revenue immediately because they were used to on-premise software. And they couldn't figure out what this metric was called NRR. And most public companies didn't disclose it until three or four or five years ago. But now Wall Street's hooked on it. People have figured out, oh gosh, if I get companies with good growth rates and high NRR, these things are just going to compound. They're going to compound into the future. So I'm a huge fan of Smartsheet. I'm a huge fan of any company that clears that bar of 30% growth, 131% high, but over 110% we would consider best in class 
because they're starting the year with this great base to grow off of. And if you just bought those companies and sit on them for the next five to six years, assuming the long-term thesis in the space is intact, don't buy a company that's going to decline in growth or their customers are going to run because their product is old or they're going to become the next Oracle or IBM. But look at Smartsheet, look at Asana, look at Monday in the security space, look at CrowdStrike, look at Okta, look at these companies that have high net revenue retention. And if you draw a line out for the next five to seven years, you're depending on when you come in. And obviously we have multiple fluctuation, but you're going to make money. Yeah. And for the guys and gals playing the home game, Smartsheet is we're sitting here as a $59 stock. I think Wells Fargo put a $95 price target on it in early January, citing a lot of things you're talking about. A lot of analysts love this name and it's come off significantly. So there probably is a huge opportunity, something I'm going to take a look at as well. In terms of being a venture capitalist though, Jeff, in this environment where there are fewer and fewer opportunities and more and more money chasing them, how do you walk away from what looks like a great opportunity, but you just can't wrap your head around the valuations at this point? And that's got to be challenging because I'm sure there are a lot of deals you'd love to be in, but it just doesn't make sense. I'd say today, at least for the last few years, we've been in an interesting situation where despite as much capital has come into the space as has, we've had more great opportunities that we would have liked to invest it in than we could. So in Q4, we probably had 20 or 30 companies in the US that we were really excited about. We only got to invest in four or five. Now, valuations have been aggressive, as you highlight. Some of those will come home to roost. They won't live up to those valuations when they go public. I was talking with a friend of mine who's a board member of a private company that raised money last year. I'll call it a $4 billion valuation. His public comps have come down 60 and 70%. And he said, yeah, I think we've probably taken a 5 or 10% hit on valuation, but we're not going to raise money anytime in the next six months. And I said, I got news for you, brother. When you do, it's going to be a lot further down than 5 or 10%. So there'll be an adjustment that we'll work through, but those long-term enduring companies, we're on the board of many public companies, and we just tell them, hey, guys, we weren't building this company for Q1 of 22. We're building it for five, seven years down the road. We had a board meeting this morning. We literally just had this conversation. We're not raising capital right now. Our stock doesn't get marked to market. Let's focus on where we're going to be in five or six years. And I think that's a really important mentality to also have as an individual investor. I'm not owning these stocks for where they are in Q1 of 22. In fact, when people on Twitter get mad at me in the comments and say, hey, you recommended Smartsheet or Okta or whatever, I say, yeah. And I also said, hold it for five years. So the fact that it went down 20% in the last two weeks shouldn't bother you. But I think that's a really important mentality and something that a lot of the public company CEOs are having to work through right now, because let's be honest, you got some great companies, Twilio and CrowdStrike and Okta that have just gotten hammered in the last 12 months. And their business is better than it was. Their growth rates are accelerating. The fundamentals in the markets they're going after are better. So it was merely just market sentiment, which turns into multiples. And we'll power through that. And over time, they'll create a great company. I use that Salesforce chart all the time because if you had sold Salesforce every time it dipped, you never would have made any money. You'd have kept chasing and buying and chasing and buying. And But let's be honest, if folks went on TV and said, hey, what's your big idea today? And somebody just said, I'm just holding. Well, what are you holding? I'm holding everything. It wouldn't be very exciting. But that is the strategy that in the long run will pay off best for most investors. What we recognize though, Jeff, is that there's new people to new stories every day. How do we introduce some new ideas to people who are not involved? And to your point, if the listener here is new to the tech investing and everything that they've heard right now, this would be an absolute amazing time to start dipping your toe into the water in every single one of these situations. But as Guy will tell you, investors have memory and they know what it's like to do things the wrong way. 
buying, like you said earlier, into a frenzy or selling at a relative low. I guess my take is, and coming full circle to the start of the conversation a little bit, is that what's going on right now, this utter devastation, Square, for instance, okay? Square was trading at $290 last summer, and right now it's at $100. Well, in the throes of the pandemic, at the lows, it was trading at $35. And to me, we got disconnected to the upside, and we might get disconnected to the downside. And $100 might prove not to be great support. I've never seen so many disconnects as we see at this very moment, which tells me that I think we're more likely at an inflection point, not the way a lot of people who are bullish on buying the dip have been over the last couple of years. Guy, I'm just curious your thoughts on that. You make a great point, Jeff. It's hard to go on TV every night when they ask the question, what are you doing? I'm just watching. That obviously doesn't make for riveting television. And our show was created not on the premise of being a stock picking show and what's going up, what's going down. It's just, how do you look at things? How should you be looking at things? Those types of things. So if you're looking at our show for just picking stocks, it's the wrong thing, in my opinion. And I do, to a large extent, think one of the things we've tried to do is educate people and just make something that's been very scary and mystical, less mystical and more accessible. I was talking to a friend who's new in investing and he said, yeah, I bought Robinhood at the high and I just sold it. And I said, well, what was your thesis when you bought it? And he said, well, everybody was talking about it and it seemed like they had a lot of momentum. I said, my basic advice to you, if you're a new investor, anytime you want to buy an individual name, ask yourself, is this going to outperform QQQ or SPY? What's my thesis on how this outperforms the NASDAQ 100 or the S&P 500? And if you can't explain that, then put your money in QQQ or SPY (laughs) because you'll be happier in the long run. I have a thesis on some of these names that I own as to why they'll outperform. But if you don't, just get in the indexes. Well, one of the big theses over the last years, I think it's going to wind up on Wall Street Bets or one of these Reddit chat rooms. And by the way, that worked for a long time. But that's another conversation for another time. I want to ask you this following question before we get out of here. If this whole VC thing doesn't work out, I got to tell you, you got to open a restaurant because I saw a tweet from you, two-part tweet. First of all, I don't know how you get your bacon that effing flat and looking that good. But those burgers in the afterglow were just, I mean, that's restaurant quality shit, dude. What are they teaching you at Dartmouth? My daughter, Camille, who's a tough critic, she said it was one of the five best of all time. I will tell you what I figured out over time, you got to start with good meat. As my dad likes to say, if Costco doesn't have it, I don't need it. So we didn't grow up eating prime beef. But if you start with good meat and you get the brioche bun, that bacon was from her butcher shop. When she said she wanted burger night last night, I was like, all right, I'm going all in. Those were good burgers. I'm glad you noticed. You were like, that's a challenge. Hey, Jeff, before we get out of here, who owns Web3? Do the VCs own Web3? Have you weighed in? I haven't seen you weigh into this one because this is one where I think you're probably a little bit torn here. You got Jack over here, and then you got your friends over at A16Z over here, and you got a lot of stuff in the middle, and it's an interesting debate, and it seems fierce at times. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. And you talked a lot about innovation. You talked about enterprise and SaaS and AI. How does Web3 figure into what you guys are doing over there at GGV? Well, first of all, I'm super bullish on the category. I do think it's going to help usher in a new wave of fintech adoption, particularly outside the US. I'm an investor in a company that provides banking services in Africa. And we're talking to the founder about crypto. And she said, my clients in Africa don't care whether they're trading Bitcoin or US dollar. They really don't care. They have no allegiance to the dollar. So I think this notion of global currencies that can be traded 24-7, 365 is really interesting. A lot of what we're seeing today is reminiscent of the 98, 99 internet phase with pets.com, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of the things that are happening around NFTs and 
things that sell tokens and never get launched is hype. But I'm bullish on the long run. I think it's going to also force our financial services industry to innovate a little bit. I've been refinancing a mortgage with a bank that I've been doing business with for 12 years, and I'm in month four. And I'm like, you guys have given me loans on this house. You have all my banking information. How does it take four months to do this? So I hope that DeFi and Web3 and some of the things that are happening with crypto will drive real innovation and force our banking system to adopt some new technologies in a much faster way. And in the short term, there will be some speculators who make a lot of money off suckers. We're already seeing that happen. It didn't take VC firms long to figure out that this was a category that folks wanted to be investing in. For me personally, I have a Coinbase account. I own Bitcoin. I own Ethereum. I own a few other things. And then I've invested in a bunch of crypto native funds, One Confirmation, Multicoin, a few other folks who are really deep in the space. I'm sort of outsourcing some of my early investment there to them. And we as a firm are looking at global opportunities in other parts of the world where we think this technology will play a big role. So I'm long-term bullish. I'm short-term acknowledging that there's a lot of hype and circumstance. Jeff, we loved having you on. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being a good sport. I'm rooting for Dartmouth Hoops. I don't think the tournament is in the cards this year, but- This may not be our year. (laughs) You never know, man. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.